You're listening to Radio Albion, talk radio for the nationalist community. This is Matthew Raphael Johnson, and this is going out on the 1st of February, 2024. Before I begin for today, I just, I just want to mention the, um, a preliminary verdict has come in concerning the um, lawsuit, so to speak, against uh, Israel in the International Criminal Court, and takes a lot of time to say absolutely nothing. One of the most striking aspects of it is that it calls on the Israeli government to prevent cases of genocide. you got to let that sink in. It didn't sink in at first, but how ridiculous it is. If, in fact, that's what they're doing, and they are, you don't call on those who are committing it to say you need to stop not just inciting genocide, but actually doing it, as if they're going to say, oh, we didn't realize. The final verdict has not come in, but there is a very guarded recognition of it from the court. The court is no doubt aware of Mossad and what Israel is capable of. Again, this is only a preliminary, um, really, it's not even, it's not a verdict, it's an understanding. And it really doesn't matter because there's no teeth to this, but it is now a matter of of public understanding. But rather than talk about that again, I want to talk about something that's been trying to fit into the front page and hasn't quite done so yet. Again, the front page is meaningless to me. That's what the regime considers important. Sometimes you have to go along with it because everyone's talking about it, but Um, And that's North Korea. I've published one article, I think, one article in my entire career on modern North Korea. I uh, did one, a long one, on the Korean War, one battle in particular. And ultimately, it all comes comes down to the same same argument. But um, for a short time, major media, heavily embedded, was... um, you know, seeing that there's a few shells were lobbed into the Yellow Sea, and um, and therefore the regime wants to, you know, at least the media wants to alert the world that nuclear war is around the corner. But there's broader questions as to why is the U.S. obsessed with this country? Its media has invented stories, and this is not to apologize for Stalinism here, although by now the system in Pyongyang is is very idiosyncratic. It's invented stories totally out of whole cloth about it. So getting to the truth of the matter is extremely difficult. This is the most extreme version of Johnson's Law. 
because I don't care who you are, including researchers in South Korea, it's very difficult to get verified fact. And because of that, the propaganda barrage against them has been extraordinary. On the one hand, the regime says that this, like all the governments it doesn't like, is near collapse. And yet, carrier after carrier group gets sent there. The U.S. commits billions of military assets, which is odd for a country that is, quote-unquote, near collapse. Now, I'm willing to say, I'm not claiming to be an expert on Korea, but I certainly am on nationalism and comparative politics. But at this point, North Korea is best described as a national Bolshevist state. Race nationalism is a big part of the puzzle. There's no denying that at this point. Its system of planning is both military and state, the state really serving as a tool in the planning process. It's not an autonomous entity whatsoever. The state is the sole banker, and it collects profits and capital gains. North Korea does not levy taxes on the population. Most of you have heard the word Juche as the brainchild of Kim Il-sung and his son, which, as far as it goes, now I've read the primary literature on what this is, Kim Il-sung's book in particular, I'm sorry, King John Il's book, and it stresses independence, but independence in the sense of autonomy, of self-reliance, which is extremely difficult for a fairly small but homogenous country. And the Songun policy is a what the regime calls its military first po uh, policy, stressing the necessity of military investments before everything else in service of independence. And the way that the theory resolves itself is that true freedom is the same as national independence. An individual or even a family can't of themselves be free. They certainly can be free of internal passions, but not in the political sense. Political freedom, and this is very Hegelian, uh, is found in a strong and centralized national state. Strong and centralized has to do with the external environment more than anything else. Before I get on to what's been reported, I want to quote from Kim Jong-il's very famous book on the Juche idea, which at least was published in English in 1982. And I think you have to understand this before you could even you know, read a newspaper article on it, because this is absolutely critical. Building an independent national economy means building an economy which is free from dependence on others and which stands on its own feet, an economy which serves one's own people and develops on the strength of the resources of one's own country and by the efforts of one's own people. Such an economy makes it possible to develop the productive forces quickly by utilizing the nation's natural resources in a rational and integrated way, improve the people's living standard continuously, strengthen the material and technical foundations of socialism, increase the nation's political, economic, and military power. It also ensures the exercise of complete sovereignty and equality in political and economic affairs and international relations. 
and contributes to strengthening the world's anti-imperialist, independent forces and socialist forces. It is vital to build an independent national economy, particularly in those countries which were backward economically and technically because of imperialist domination and plunder in the past. Only when they build an independent national economy in these countries will they be able to repel the new colonial policy of the imperialists, free themselves completely from their domination and exploitation, wipe out national inequality, and vigorously advance on the road to socialism. And that is one of the foundational pillars of the entire government. I've stressed for some time now that because it's a racially and linguistically homogenous country, this isn't really an unrealistic conception. Obviously, when you talk like that, and there's nothing wrong with what I just wrote, uh, what I just read to you, in and of itself. So it's pretty obvious how nuclear weapons and heavy industry fit into to this understanding. The Songun idea is not just military first in terms of uh, economics and resources, but it's considered one of the most important forms of political participation in the state and the economy. Marxism, you know, the myths of the proletariat, this has been replaced by the army and hence the nation. The army affects everyone, since everyone has either been drafted or related to someone who's been drafted. So that's the bulk of the population. It brings the army into social and economic life to the point where it can one day be self-financing. And of course, the leader, you can't get any less Marxist than this, the leader is, again, another critical conception of this kind of national socialism or national Bolshevism, I think is probably a better way to put it. The leader is the content of nationalist policy. The party is its form. The good of the nation is formulated by the leader and then brought to bear on the population by the party, which also includes the army. The working population, they, they avoid terms like proletarian. Those who work physically or mentally, that serves as the energy. The energy that brings everything about, that connects those two policies together, which is pretty obvious. They create everything that, that any nation needs. But it's very flexible. You know, at one time, maybe Stalin was a foundation, but only really in symbolism at this point. They talk about socialism, but that term is very elastic. Now, that's a very brief introduction to the basic political thinking, and because of the homogenous population, probably accepted by a substantial proportion of the North Korean population. Now, more recently, I published one paper on contemporary North Korean issues in 2017. And I, given the carrier force that's now floating around just uh, off the coast, um, I dusted it off and rewrote it with um, contemporary issues in mind. I want to quote from Le Monde, the French newspaper, writing this on January 6th of this year. 
2024 began with the sound of cannon fire on the Korean Peninsula, following in the footsteps of the previous year. 2023 was marked by an escalation in tensions that South Korean Unification Minister Kim Young-ho attributed on Saturday, January 6, to the North's desire to, quote, divert the population's discontent to economic problems. The previous day, Matthew Miller, spokesman for the U.S. State Department, was quoted by South Korea's Yonhap News Agency as saying that the U.S. had, quote, no hostile intentions towards North Korea. Washington called on Pyongyang to refrain from further provocative, destabilizing actions and return to diplomacy in order to discuss ways to manage military risks and create lasting peace on the Korean Peninsula. And that is very typical of how the media report on things as well as how U.S. elites and regimes see these things. And it's very depressing to consider that there are many very well-educated people who will accept this kind of nonsense as somehow reflective of reality. Now, how many times have I connected American foreign policy to the neurotic defense mechanism of projection? To say that the North's purpose here, Kim's purpose, is to divert attention from economic problems. I mean, you couldn't have a more American point of view. It's exactly what the U.S. does. Its economy is the unstable one, not the Russian, not the Iranian, not the Chinese, and not North Korea. It had to have originated in the U.S. It's so infantile. But neurotic projection is very easy to discern here. Almost everything I read about the State Department, Defense Department, talking about the enemies of the U.S., almost to a word, better fits the U.S. than to the target of the rhetoric. And they actually came out and said that they have no hostile intentions. It, it's a lie so extraordinary. No normal person really can, can contemplate it for very long without some very serious physical repercussions. But I thought that North Korea was on the verge of collapse because of its irrational economy. Now, of course, the DPRK was in the news back in September for the meeting, very high-level meeting with Russia, and more recently, the implementation of those agreements a few weeks ago. That is why, very briefly, North Korea was terrifying, this little country terrifying the regime. The director of arms control for the U.S., Prane Vadi, which I think is an Indian name, stated that the, the nature of this new security threat posed by North Korea can change drastically in the coming decade. But we all know that's not because of its inherent military power, which is not designed to project power outside of its borders. That's not its purpose. But the only thing that really bothers the West is this new cooperation. Now, it's not new. The cooperation with Russia has been going on for a long time. Same thing for China. But this is the first time it's been formulated and formalized in documents. Now, there's no dispute, even if it's, it's a, you know, a few shots being fired, no dispute between the two Koreas should ever be news. That's normal background information. Speaking of projection, the, the regime continuously says that um, Russia has run out of military supplies in the 
Ukraine war, and therefore this is really about North Korea, of all places, being called upon to supply the Russian military. If, if that's not a almost pure example of projection, I don't know, I don't know what else to say. It's clearly the case. There is a psychological explanation for a lot of these. The truth is, of course, the U.S. had to get its air missile battery from Japan. And as everyone knows, the U.S. is critically, they were critically low on material and ammunition, um, you know, six months ago. Let alone now, where more has to be diverted to, uh, to Israel. Now, of course, the French newspaper, most of, most of the media, if they have any sense of responsibility, will say that all these deliveries are unconfirmed. But how ignorant do you have to be to buy this? Russia has one of the largest domestic and state-owned military supply chains and industrial complex on the planet. Russia, as of right now, is using maybe 10% of its military capacity. I'm telling you, there is a psychological explanation for some of the rhetoric coming out of regime uh, uh, sources, especially Washington. The issue, of course, is the assistance that Moscow can provide Pyongyang. Uh, it was just not that long ago the foreign minister of North Korea visited Moscow, received at the Kremlin, and this is where they discussed how these both military and economic um, cooperation agreements are going to be put into practice. The Kremlin actually stated that North Korea, quote, is our very important partner. We are focused on the further development of our relations in all areas, including in sensitive areas. Now, the other thing that got Russia on the, sorry, that got North Korea on the front page was a few weeks ago, when the now infamous underwater nuclear weapon system was tested. And that was around the time where Kim III announced, you know, what everyone knew anyway, that the reunification with the Republic of Korea is just not possible, as if it ever was. Kim Jong-il says that the North does not seek war, but it will not avoid war. So these deepening ties with Moscow is really the issue. It seems to be a, a common sense thing to do. The U.S. is building a coalition, including Japan, South Korea, and maybe Australia, to counter North Korea, which, according to the, to the West, is going to collapse at any time. Clearly, they don't believe that. But if North Korea builds these formalized ties with Moscow, it automatically means building ties with the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which would include Central Asia, even Turkey. Trade with the axis of resistance is pretty substantial. But this is what the foreign ministry of the DPRK stated after this. The DPRK side highly appreciated the important mission and role of the powerful Russian Federation in maintaining the strategic stability and balance of the world and expressed expectation that the Russian Federation would continue to adhere to independent policies and lines in all fields in the future and thus make it a great contribution to international peace and security in the establishment of an equal and fair international order. 
Now, we just read what that means in the Juche idea. This is what sent the regime orbital. But just as importantly, this is the 1st of February, 2024. The U.S. does not have the wherewithal to do battle in Korea. Neither the men, the money, the equipment, and certainly not the political will, especially for anything on the ground. It's not going to risk yet another humiliation. The American response um, will be more projection, but and I'm not necessarily making a prediction here, but I have the feeling that the U.S. is going to try to kick Russia and China off the Security Council or just abolish the council altogether. And they'll put it like you know, they want it. They want more third world um, participation or something stupid like that. But this is this would be the only reason. I wrote back in 2017, a carrier strike force shows up off Korean waters. And in 2024, the same thing happened. And they arrive based on the same mythology and, and stories. Now, regardless of our views on what Pyongyang does domestically. They certainly have never thought, sought to conquer anyone and really seek to be left alone, as a Juche idea suggests. Infantry, of course, is out of the question. The North Korean military has long been dug in and is awaiting an American or ROK attack. Her population is heavily armed and used to these kind of drills and defense procedures, but what torments the West is how could this, according to them, backwards economy produced domestically and entirely domestically nuclear weapons? Just a few days ago, American nuclear weapons arrived in Korea. The fact that with any war, U.S., North Korea, concerning, say, an incursion of the DMZ, which is it would have to be a very extreme event for that to happen. Korean forces would come under American command, which is extremely unpopular in South Korea. In fact, I question how loyal all but the most elite Korean troops would be in fighting and killing other Koreans for the glory of American liberalism. Yet, the people who control the, quote, Biden administration continue to send very scarce military hardware to the region. And if nothing else, it shows the wild levels of um, imperial overstretch. It was in 2008 when North Korea sought to ban all military exercises on the peninsula. The U.S. continues to do so. For the U.S. to talk about threats from Pyongyang, well, the U.S. engages in almost monthly exercises aimed at the North, including with the use of nuclear weapons. I've read the documents myself. Actually, it was October of 2023 that the nuclear weapons arrived in Seoul. It was actually March of 2017 that the U.S. and the ROK performed drills using simulated nuclear weapons. It was the North that reached out to Seoul several times for peace. But the U.S., not the Koreans, the U.S. rebuffed it. They speak for South Korea. 
In March of 2017, China offered a deal where the North would end its nuclear tests in exchange for the complete cessation of, uh, of any drills by the Americans. Cease and desist. That was rejected by Washington, again, speaking for South Korea. The DPRK is an invented enemy. It's, a, it's, a, it's an imaginary world created in the minds of the financial elites and Washington hacks. The U.S. has said it's going to attack the North if nuclear weapons tests were carried out. Well, one was just carried out. The U.S. is in no position to take action. But these tests aren't grounds for a military strike anyway. But I find it interesting that China under Mao exploded its first nuclear weapon in 1964, nearing the, the end of some of the most bloody political persecution any country has ever experienced in this attempt to industrialize the country, which of course failed miserably until it became a national state rather than a Marxist one. And yet despite 30 million Chinese corpses as a direct result of communist policies, there were no threats from the U.S., there were no sanctions, but all of a sudden China developed socialism with Chinese characteristics or a you know, social nationalist idea, and now it's being ringed with military bases, has been ringed with military bases. But if Mao was not going to use these weapons, then certainly Kim wouldn't. Obviously, his own country would be vaporized as a result. It's just a scare tactic to keep Western populations focused on this area of the world. I've read enough Russian reports that do not show North Korea as a starving country. American economists don't really have the background on not just Korean nationalism, but this variant of social nationalism, this variant of national Bolshevism that the North Korean economy is based on. But thanks to the U.S., Pyongyang has to divert half of its yearly budget to the military. This is why political decentralization exists. It's for the very same reason, foreign threats. That's the rally around the leader idea. It's meant to not only stop factionalism, as national unity is, is a potent weapon. And this unity, by the way, is as much racial as it is political. You do have a middle class that emerged from the famines of the mid-90s, which came from the flooding. The automotive sector is doing better, as much as anyone can tell. North Korea has nothing to gain from war, and in fact has every incentive to seek peace. We know that the 1990s were not kind to North Korea. Floods, 1993, 1994, destroyed local agriculture. I mean, only 20% of North Korea is farmable, arable, and even that is only frost-free for half the year. Oil shipments from the Soviet Union dried up as it collapsed, about 75%. 1994-95, I should say, or the floods, 70% of the energy plants in North Korea were destroyed. And so, by the way, was all of its grain reserve. Something like 3 million tons. North Korea collapsed because of this. It's hard to know precise numbers, 
It's anywhere between 200,000 and 500,000. And that includes people who emigrated to China. The West claimed two, three million, whatever, which is just propaganda. But this crisis, this very intense crisis, created new institutions. There is an entrepreneurial economy, especially near the Chinese border. No one is going to drive that out. There was a certain independence from the state. The, the black, gray, and even the legal markets were integrated, and they continue. South Korea and China did offer food aid. It kept the country together. But half of its industry was destroyed in this era. So now you have private plots. You have this traditional agriculture dominated by family matriarchs. Now is a critical part of its food supply. It's recovered, of course. But given the war economy, its growth rates are really a, a state secret. But the Russians clearly have modernized much of the North, especially in its energy department that was destroyed uh, going on now 30 years ago. I want to quote um, a North Korea specialist from France, Henri Ferrand, who writes this. The common prejudice that North Korea must be one of the poorest countries in the world is based on highly speculative and likely politicized GDP estimates. Comparatively speaking, our most reliable indicators are food production and trade statistics, and both indicate that North Korea is doing much better, certainly than in the 1990s, during the post-Soviet economic crisis. Data locally collected by the World Food Program indicates that North Korea is now more or less back to the nutritional self-sufficiency of the 1980s, Cereal production of about 5 million tons in 2012, compared to about 2 million in 96, and has considerably decreased key indicators of chronic undernutrition, stunting, and wasting. I think he means they're wasting away. You know how I've railed about these sensation, uh, sensationalized stories over and over and over again about the coming collapse of China, Russia, Iran, DPRK. And it's just nonstop. Every, every month there's a, there's a flurry of them. And it never happens, of course. And it's really from this where I got the projection idea, because clearly it applies more to the West than anywhere else. The axis of resistance, economically speaking, is far more stable than the U.S., but Ferrand also adds a few warnings about analysis of anything North Korean, especially from a hostile power like you know, the West, and, you know, NATO, and the U.S. He makes four points. Number one, accurate numbers are impossible. As I already said, few economists understand how an economy like this functions. They still have these market assumptions in the back of their mind. What counts as growth? What counts as income? These definitions have no relation to the market economy. So what often happens, and even, even good analyses just kind of assume that the priorities and functions of any economy is the same, whether it be Pyongyang or New York. The second point is that, you know, estimates that might, that might work for South Korea or the UK, 
But for North Korea, it can't work. As I already said, the methods aren't all that relevant. Whatever the per capita yearly GDP happens to be, you can't compare it to, say, South Korea. How can you do this when you have uh, no one in North Korea pays taxes? They have a totally non-convertible currency. And they also have free education, free housing, and free pretty much everything. So, you know, that means $10 a day in income goes a lot um, further than it would in the U.S. But even you know, the Bank of, a Bank of Korea or the Bank of South Korea, the CIA fully admit that these are complete guesses. Whatever numbers they throw out there are guesses. And the last point he makes is that these numbers are politicized. I mean, if they're predicting imminent collapse a few times a month, then there's no way they could publish high growth estimates or whatever high growth may mean in an economy like North Korea at the same time. That means anything that the regime's press has to say about North Korea is highly suspect. I go to people like Lankov, and this guy I'm just quoting from seems to be um, realistic about it. A guy named um, Rudiger Frank, he's the head of the Department of East Asian Studies at the University of Vienna. Let me quote him, and this is a very important quote about this. He says, too often, such numbers produced by Shell's Bank of Korea or published in the CIA World Factbook seem to be a curious product of the market mechanism. Where there is demand, eventually there'll be a supply. If you keep asking for numbers, they'll eventually be produced. But knowing how hard it is to come up with reliable statistics, even in a transparent, advanced, Western-style economy, it remains a mystery to me how suspiciously precise data are collected on an economy that has no convertible currency and that treats even the smallest piece of information as a state secret. The point, the point he's trying to make, that the right numbers will eventually be invented to support the prevailing ideology. And there's not going to be any worry about accuracy when no one can really check the figures anyway. And don't assume merely because South Korea is closer and speak the same language that they have any better insight, um, especially when it comes to the, the Russians and the Chinese. Let me end here on a military note. For Americans, it's extremely important to remember the North Korean military is an armed force and it's centered around primarily fighting short to medium-term, very intensive wars at home against Western force. It means that these men are trained, and the system produces very tough, very intense, very focused, and ideologically motivated soldiers who function under the worst of conditions. Heavy equipment, long distances, and little food. That means these men are mentally and physically hardened. They're disciplined. They're trained in deprivation. How many Western men can match that? These are convinced. These are um, racially and, and uh, um, linguistically homogenous. They are fighting a war of defense. So numbers, technology, I don't think that's going to mean much. Combat training for everyone and infantry. It includes individual fighting, 
mountain warfare, night combat, infiltration, all kinds of unconventional methods, etc., and regardless of the cost. So any excess in whether it be technical sophistication or even numbers as far as the West and South Koreans and the Japanese are concerned, I don't think that means a whole lot. About 20%, between 20 and 25% of American males are physically and mentally capable of military service. That comes from military.com, comes from CNN, the mental illness and the pathological obesity of young people have made any draft non-viable. The only good thing that would come out of a draft would be the hilarity that would ensue. That's why the threats are empty. And these are just some of the things to note when trying to, to read between the lines in American news stories or uh, academic works on the topic. The war, of course, is against the Black Rock regime and North Korea, more, you know, like few other countries are fully aware of this. And the alliance with Russia and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization is terrifying to liberalism. And that makes me happy. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I will talk to you again next week. Bye bye. You're listening to Radio Albion, talk radio for the nationalist community. Thank you.